Let's keep talking about the incarnation this morning. Uh, we've been singing about it all morning, whether you realize it or not. But um, the incarnation is the central miracle of Christmas. And it's the central miracle of, of Christianity. Go ahead and find Philippians chapter 2 in your Bible. That's where we're going to be for the most of today. And um, I want you to think about, um, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. And I wonder how many of you have the tradition. One of the things that was kind of taken away during the pandemic that, that was given back to us, uh, especially this time of the year, was the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Now, I don't know how many of you enjoy, thank you, I don't know how many of you guys enjoy, how many of you get up intentionally on Thanksgiving morning and you sit and you watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade because you really enjoy it? Okay, there's just a few people. I was shocked. There was like almost nobody at 830 that said they watched it. And that's like a, that's a thing. Like we, we love it. I remember watching it when I was a kid. I love the big balloons and everything. But there's a rich history to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. It started in 1924. The parade itself, some things to kind of just let us see the scope and how big it is. It's a three-hour long parade. The parade route through New York is six miles. And it's viewed every year by more than 44 million people. And the cost, the total cost of what it takes to put on the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade every year is between 10 and $12 million. And so you always notice, though, in the parade, everything that's in the parade, the floats, the, the, uh, most of the floats and the balloons and the performances and the costumes are all centered around what? Christmas. It's funny that it's the Thanksgiving Day Parade, but the Thanksgiving Day Parade is really sort of ushering in the Christmas season, and the ultimate end to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is who? Santa. Santa is at the end of the parade, and it's almost as if the entire parade is to usher in Santa and his entrance into the Christmas season. So that's quite an entrance, isn't it? 10 to $12 million a year, 44 million people watching. How would you expect the God of the universe to come into the world? What kind of entrance would you expect the creator coming into his creation to look like? What kind of an entrance would you expect? Probably one that would cost more than $12 million, a parade that would be longer than six miles, and something that would be viewed not by 44 million people, but by everyone on the planet. But that's not how it was, was it? Last week, we were in John chapter 1, and John said that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the, the, the focus last week was the fact that in the incarnation, God was coming to us. He would, rather than trying to make a path for us to get to Him, He came to us. But there's a certain way that he came to us. John's focus is that he came, and we focused on that last week, but today I want us to think about how did he come. Because he came in a very specific way, and he came in a very intentional way that was completely on purpose. So I want us to look in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. This is another key passage, and I'm gonna, I want to I tell you to begin with that you're going to have to get a little academic with me this morning because we're going to talk about some doctrinal truths, some things that are, 
very, very important in our understanding of Christmas, in our understanding of, of who Jesus is and how he came into the world. And it, it's going to help us. And then there's going to be application for it for our lives that we'll get to after that. But for a little bit, um, you might feel like you're in a class for a second. And just bear with me through these things, okay? Philippians chapter 2. I want us to start in verse 5. And I want us to read through verse 11 to begin with. So Philippians 2 verse 5 says, Have this at... Oh, and I'm reading from the NASB, the New American Standard, this morning. Not the CSB, so I'm throwing you a little curveball there. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. In being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in, earth, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Okay, you, were, you did a little bit better. 8.30, I got to the end of that verse, and it was silent. And I made him do it over. Because <laughs> like, you can't read to the end of verse 11 and just not respond. The, these verses in Philippians 2, a lot of scholars believe that, that this passage is beautiful as it is. It could have been actually a hymn that the early church sang in worship as they celebrated Jesus. And this is one of the richest passages in all of Scripture to help us form our theology about Jesus, like what we believe about him. And in theological circles, that, that word is called our Christology. Basically, what are the things that we believe about Jesus that are fundamental to our faith? And this tells us so much. And so I want, I want us to, I want to give you like four foundational truths that we can pull out of this passage that that help us understand what is it that exactly we believe about Jesus and how he came into the world okay so you note takers are going to love this one so just get ready all right here's number one here's the first truth Jesus is God and has always been God that's easy right most of us wouldn't argue with that but that's an important thing that we believe about Jesus and at the very beginning of verse six Paul says, who, as he already existed in the form of God. There's some important things in the words, and I want to, I, I try not to throw lots of like Greek words and stuff at you, but sometimes it's really important for us to really understand what it is that Scripture is saying. The, the first word I want you to note in verse 6 is existed. Now, that's a past tense word in English, so it makes it look like it's, it's talking about the fact that Jesus existed at one point in the past. But that word in, in the Greek actually has a much larger meaning. It, it implies a continuous existence. The fact that when, when, when Paul writes this and says he already existed, that doesn't imply that he only existed as God 
one time or at some point in the past and then at one point stopped being God because there were heresies and, and false teachings even in the early church like in the second and third and fourth century of teachers that rose up in the church who basically taught that Jesus wasn't always God. And we talked about that a little bit last week that he, he was God and then he wasn't God and then, and then he was God. What Paul is saying here, that word existed means past, present, future. It's continuous. He existed as God. He is God in the present and he will continue to exist as God. So his deity is eternal. Always has been, is, and always will be. So he existed. The second word I want you to notice is the word form. He existed in the form of God. Now here's another little uh, language lesson I'll give you. In the Greek, there are a couple of different words for the word form. Um, the first one is the word morphe. And it is an outward expression of our essential being that never changes. Basically, the form, the outward expression of what is fundamentally true about our nature. Morphe. Okay, and so that, because it's about our fundamental essential who we are it never changes okay so our your your morphe is constant and it doesn't change but then there's another word um that i'm mispronouncing i'm sure schema which is an outward appearance that changes with time and circumstance so here's here's the difference here's an illustration our morphe from the time we're born to the time we die are essential humanness remains unchanged from the time we come from the womb until the time we die we are fundamentally human and we remain human our entire lives that doesn't change that is our form as in humanity but there's our schema which is our form that does change over time because we're born first as infants as babies and then we grow and our form changes and our outward appearance Changes So we grow from babies into toddlers and from toddlers into children and from children into teenagers, teenagers to adults. Our, our hair turns gray, our hair turns loose. Uh, are we, are all of this stuff changes about who we are and our outward appearance. So that's the schema, but who we fundamentally are stays the same, our morphe. The word that Paul uses there to talk about Jesus and his form of godliness is morphe. Which means he existed in the morphe of God. His divine nature as God never changed. Even as he comes into humanity, the form of God, his divinity as, as God never diminishes and never changes. Okay? So are you with me so far? I know that uh, somebody told me during Sunday school, they were like, my brain hurts a little bit after that. Like, I get it. I understand. But you understand the difference between our form is who we are fundamentally, essentially as people, and our form on the outside. Okay? So it says that Jesus existed in the form of God, the morphe, which means it doesn't change. All right, here's the second one. Jesus voluntarily laid aside that which rightly belonged to to him because the second half of verse 6 says he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped so he existed in the form of God 
fully God, but he didn't consider that to be something to hold on to. And, and there's, there's some specific things in this part of verse 6 as well. Rather than demand the rights and the honor and the privilege that went along with being God and being the son of God, Jesus refused to selfishly hold on to those things out of love and obedience to the Father. So we don't misunderstand, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Jesus did not lay aside his divinity. Some will misunderstand and misinterpret and say, well, that's, that's where he put aside his divinity and he was only human. No. And, and, we'll, and we'll explain that in just a minute. But what he did consider something not to be grasped was the privilege and the honor that went along with him being God. He didn't have to seize equality with God. And that word grasp, he didn't consider it something to be grasped. That word means to grab hold of or to seize. So equality was not, with God was not something that he had to seize because guess what? It was already his. So he didn't have to seize it. And he, in his selflessness, he didn't grab and grasp hold of it out of obedience to the Father's plan for him. And here's, there's a couple of examples you think about how Jesus didn't consider his equality with God something to be held tightly or held on to. Think about in Matthew 26. It says that as Jesus was hanging on the cross at any moment, he could have called 12 legion of angels to come and take him down off of the cross. Jesus had that power. He had that authority. He could have done it. But he chose not to. He willingly laid that part of his deity aside to accomplish what God had called him to do. You also think about Jesus in the wilderness. Here is God hungry, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. Why why would God be hungry? And that's exactly, if you remember when we studied that, that's the exact temptation that Satan brought to Jesus and said, you are God. Don't you know who you are? Why are you hungry? Eat. Eat the food. You know why? Because you deserve it. Because you're God. Turn that rock into a loaf of bread. Eat that thing. But Jesus voluntarily laid aside his power. Could he have done that? Absolutely. But he voluntarily laid that aside. Out of obedience and love for the Father. There there are some specific things that he... So his his equality with God, he didn't hold on to. He he let it go. And and that kind of moves into the third one. Number three, Jesus took on full humanity... In order to save us. Full humanity. Now this is one of those things that will make your head explode. If you try to think too hard about it. Verse 7 says. But he emptied himself. By taking the form of a bondservant. And being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. To the point of death. Death on a cross. Now, there's some important words that Paul uses here, too. 
namely in verse 7 when he says he emptied himself. And that's where another misunderstanding can come. I've already mentioned some people would think, well, because Jesus emptied himself, that means he, he emptied himself of his divinity. And that's not true. Because if we look closer at what's in that verse, it says that he emptied himself. He laid aside the privilege and the, um, and the rights and the advantage that he had as God in flesh. And he put those aside. But he didn't lay aside his divinity. He didn't, he didn't lay that aside. So any teaching that says Jesus at any point lost or gave away his divinity as God is heresy. It's false teaching. Don't listen to it. That is not what we believe. That's not what scripture says. But he emptied himself of the rights and privileges by taking the morphe of a bondservant. Same word. Same word that Paul uses to describe him being in the form of God, morphe. Fundamentally, he took on the form, morphe, of a bondservant. You're like, well, how can God be, how can Jesus be fully God in the form of God, but be fully in the form of a human? I don't know. I don't know. You say, how does that happen? How can, you, how can he be 100% God and, and then take on the fullness of humanity? What some people will think is that when Jesus took on humanity, he somehow put aside half of his divinity and then filled that part up with humanity so like he was half human and half God. No, that doesn't work. He was fully God, he was fully human. You say, I don't understand how that works. I don't either, but I'm pretty sure God can do the math. I'm pretty sure he can figure out how to do that. And, and, because that's what the Bible teaches. And, and some of the privileges and advantages that he laid aside when it says he emptied himself, what specifically is he talking about? Not his divinity, but he gave up his right to independently exercise his divinity on his own behalf. Remember, key word there in verse 8, by becoming obedient he emptied himself as as co-equal with the father same essence same divinity but he emptied himself by placing himself under the authority of the father and so that's why so many times over and over in the gospels Jesus says things like I only do what the father instructs me to do I've only come to do the will of my father because he emptied his independence and he placed himself under the authority of the father. He, didn't, he, he, he chose not to just do whatever he had the power to do whenever he wanted to do it because he was obedient to the father. Does that make sense? He also gave up his pre-incarnate glory. He gave, what he laid aside and emptied himself of was the glory that he had before he came. You remember the prayer from last week that we saw when Jesus prayed and he said, Father, before he went to the cross, he said, restore the glory that I had when I was with you. That's the glory. Jesus said, Father, restore it, glorify me in that way because when he came into the world, he laid that glory aside. That's why there was no big parade for him. That's why he didn't come. To, to be enthroned in a palace the way he deserved to be. 
but he laid all that aside. And he limited the use of some of his divine attributes in obedience to the Father. You think about God. One of the characteristics of God is omniscience, that he knows all. But when the disciples, people ask him, when, when would the day of the Lord come? Jesus said, I don't know. What did he say? He said, only the Father knows. But the angels don't even know. And he said, I don't know. In his humanity, in taking on that full humanity, he laid aside his omniscience was one of the things. His omnipresence, he emptied himself of that because now he's limited by a human body. He can't be in all places at all times, which God can be. That's a part of his divinity. But he emptied himself of his omnipresence and he emptied himself of his omnipotence. Again, there were times that Jesus had the power, could have done something, but he chose not to. He voluntarily emptied himself. But if it was in obedience to what God had called him to do, he demonstrated his power, right? He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He fed thousands and thousands of people. He performed divine, miraculous miracles that only God could do, but only under the instruction of the Father. So he did this, emptied himself by taking on the form of a man. But not just a man, but you see what kind of man he took the form of? Not a king, not even a a middle class person. He took on the form of a bondservant, Paul says, a slave. So we have the full divinity of God in Jesus, the son, pre-incarnate, Equal with the Father comes into the comes into earth and he takes on full humanity and his full divinity and his full humanity come together. And he adds, it says he take he took on the form of a bondservant. I Means he didn't lose his divinity, he took on the humanity on top, like along with his full divinity. And so we see the sovereign becoming the slave. The sovereign lowering himself the word condescend you'll read sometimes when you read about this Jesus condescended to where we were to be the servant a bond servant owned nothing of his own in that day think about Jesus Jesus had no he had no land he had no animals he had no business Jesus had no home. Jesus was homeless. Why? Because he took on the form of a bond servant. He took ownership of nothing. He had nothing material rather than the clothes on his back. And that's, that's all he would claim to be his. Everything else he didn't have. I mean, when he, when he rode into Jerusalem the week of Passover, he had to borrow a donkey. And even when Jesus died on the cross and was taken down on the cross, where was his body laid? In a tomb that was borrowed from Joseph of Arimathea. All through the characteristic of the life of Jesus, we see this character of a bondservant in full obedience to God. And he said it in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, which is what he deserved which would have been a privilege as God 
He says, I didn't come for that. But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die. He came to give his service and his life to the Father so that we could be rescued. But then what was, the, what was the father's response to Jesus' obedience? We'll see in verses 9 through 11, number 4, the father exalted and glorified Jesus in his humble obedience. In the fact that Jesus was faithful and humble in laying aside his glory in coming to earth as a man. God glorified him in verse 9. It says, for this reason also, God highly exalted him. What does, what does scripture say? God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He lifts us up in our humility. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Every name. That means he's on top. Not a single name above him. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. For those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, there's no time or space limitation to it. Every knee will bow. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every person will bow and every person will will confess. We will either bow and confess in humility and gratitude before him as Lord or we will bow and confess before him in fear as our judge. But every knee will bow because God has highly exalted him. But what I want you to see is that Jesus' exaltation came through his humiliation. Think about the way they treated Jesus, what Jesus endured in the crucifixion. What he endured throughout his ministry, but especially on that night he was arrested. The fact, it should, it should blow our minds that humans were able or even allowed to treat God, their own creator, the way he was treated. That was allowed and Jesus willingly did that out of obedience for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And that joy that was set before him was this exaltation and the relationship and the restoration that his obedience would bring to our relationship with God. God exalted him in the resurrection from the dead. He, re he exalted him in the ascension. He exalted him as our great high priest. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Here's, here's a picture of the exaltation of Jesus. Ephesians 1, starting midway in verse 19. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every Name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
And he put all things in subjection under his feet and made him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Folks, this is the Jesus that lay in the manger. This this Ephesians 1, in these verses here, raised him from the dead, seated at his right hand in heavenly places, above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every other name that is named. That's who he was. That's who we celebrate. That's who we worship. That's what we, what we behold. God, exalted God, coming to us as a baby. And he didn't come with a parade, with balloons and bands, but he came very quietly in the night with a human mother and an earthly father in a barn full of animals. And most of the world had no idea he showed up. So what's our response to be to this? You say, okay, these are, these are fundamental doctrinal truths about, that we believe about Jesus. This is trying to help us wrap our minds around what this incarnation means. But what's our response supposed to be? If we read this passage in context of everything else Paul is saying, I want you to go back. We started in verse 5 of chapter 2. I want you to go back to the beginning of chapter 2 with me. And look back at verse 1. And we'll find out exactly. You say, well, what, what does this mean for me? How, am I, how is this supposed to affect me? And change, how do I respond? He's going to tell us right here. Philippians 2 verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He's talking about the unity of the church. Then look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You get it? What he does in chapter 1 is he, he starts, in chapter 2, he starts out saying, this is our proper response as believers, and let me tell you why. And then he explains the incarnation. Here's the last point. The incarnation shows us who God is so we can know who we are to be. And this is where you say, well, what does this mean for us? How does this apply to Christmas? And, and, and what does this mean for my life? Paul makes it very clear that how Jesus comes into the world is a model for how we are to come into one another's lives. How we are to live among one another as the church. How we are to come into the lives of other people. Selfless, humble, not only caring about ourselves all the time. And it should sound familiar. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 
thinking about what we've just talked about with the incarnation. Verse 4, love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act disgracefully. It does not seek its own benefit. It is not provoked. It does not keep an account of wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Folks, 1 Corinthians 13 is the incarnation. It's not just the pretty poem that you read at your wedding. And so I'm afraid that what we do is we miss out on what this means, especially at Christmas time, because so much of, of the commercialism of Christmas is built around what? Our wish lists. This is what I want, and I'll make a big list of what I want. Because why? Because I've been good. Y'all know how I feel about Charlie Brown Christmas. Greatest cartoon ever. And Sally, you remember the part, Charlie Brown is trying to figure out the meaning of Christmas, and his little sister Sally comes to him and says, Big brother, would you write a letter to Santa Claus for me? And he says, okay. And she begins to say, and this is what she says, Dear Santa Claus, how have you been? Did you have a nice summer? How is your wife? I have been extra good this year, so I have a long list of presents that I want. Please note the size and color of each item and send as many as possible. If it seems too complicated, make it easy on yourself. Just send money. How about tens and twenties? And Charlie Brown throws the clipboard up in the air in frustration and says, ugh, even my baby sister. And he runs away. And then Sally says something that if we will let it, will will help us see our own heart. She says, as this little girl, all I want is what I have coming to me. All I want is my fair share. Jesus gives up his fair share. That's what Christmas is. And when I convince myself that I deserve all of this stuff, I am deceiving myself. And I am destroying the incarnation. The the proper response is not to get what I have coming to me and to take my fair share. The proper response is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves and don't merely look out for your own personal interest, but for the interest of other people. So what have you convinced yourself that you deserve this Christmas? What have you told other people that you deserve? Maybe not that you, maybe you didn't use that word, but you've been very vocal about what you wanted. And maybe in that you convinced yourself, it's okay for me to want these things because I deserve them. 
You know, we sang that song, Jaira. It's an incredible song. But think about what we sang. There's a line in that chorus that's really important. It says, and I will be content in every circumstance. You are Jaira. You are enough. Like, do we mean that? We can sing it in a great song that's well written and has a great melody and incredible music that's so good. But man, we better be careful when we sing to God about how easy it is for us to be content in all of our circumstances and then turn around and talk about what we don't have and what we deserve. What rights are you holding to? What privileges are you holding on to? I hear, I I get frustrated with myself and with other people sometimes when I hear people talk about it's my right, it's my right, it's my right. So what? Like you can talk about that kind of stuff if you're not a Christian, go for it. But I don't know that we can all the time. That's just not what we see in Jesus. The incarnation is the greatest expression of God's love from the manger to the cross. And Jesus expressed that love by giving up what he deserved and what was rightfully his. And he gave it up to serve. So how are we, how are we serving? 